Hello, everyone. Welcome to Latter-day Struggles. This is your host, Valerie, and I am pleased to have a guest here today and for the next several episodes. Welcome, Greg Prince. How are you today? I'm well, thanks. I am so excited to have him on the show, and I was just telling him before we opened this episode today, I am a big fan of Greg Prince. As I was emerging into the progressive Mormon world and just doing a ton of reading and listening and learning, I noticed Greg's name kept coming up over and over and over again. And so to be able to spend the next few hours with you, Greg, is such a privilege and an honor because you have been around for a while in the world of Mormon studies. You have published some phenomenal books and your voice has been incredibly important in the work that many of us are striving to put forward here in and around the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints to help the church and to help the people who want to have some kind of a relationship with the church become more healthy. And I see you as a big part of that, Greg. So thank you for your contributions. You're welcome. I would love it if you would begin by telling us a little bit about yourself. I'm talking your personal history, family, education, professional history, and then we'll move a little bit more into like your Mormon studies background, but just get to, help us get to know you a little bit, if you would. Grew up in Los Angeles, seventh generation Latter-day Saint. My ancestry moved into the St. George area in the 1860s. So my father was the first of five generations of princes to leave that area. He went to Southern California in 1939 to go to dental school and then as everyone did in those years went into the service during world war ii and then stayed in los angeles established a dental practice i was in los angeles until i went to college and because of his experience my grandparents uncles aunts and an older brother i applied to only one school and that was what was then dixie junior college in saint george it had 500 students the city had 5,000 inhabitants. It was the best educational experience I ever had, and I maintain ties to this day to what's now Utah Tech University. Uh, I grew up in an extended family of dentists. <clears throat> a cousin who was an orthodontist sat down with me one time. We figured we had 18 extended family members who were either dentists or dental hygienists. But I was the one of the 18 that took a turn midway through while I was in dental school at UCLA. We had an exceptional, really unique course in general pathology that turned my head. So midway through dental school, I took a year's leave of absence, did a pathology residency in the medical school down the hall. After dental school, went back to the pathology department, did a PhD in pathology, and that really defined my career. Although I practiced dentistry part-time for 20 years, it was the research that defined my career and that also gave me the tools for the subsequent foray into Mormon studies. Wow. How did, can, can you, let's go down that rabbit trail for just a second. How was it that your background in pathology was your path into Mormon studies. I can't, I, I'm very curious. Well, it gave me the tools once I got in there. It wasn't the path. Mm. Tools can be summarized really in three words, follow the data. Yeah. Science is data. 
<clears throat> and if your data are reliable, then you go with them. If you go against them, you'll pay a price. And I've seen that many times in my scientific career of scientists who wanted the science to go in a certain direction, but the data didn't point there, and they tried to go in an opposite direction. It doesn't end well. So I'm loving what you're saying. It's almost like if we were to put that to some sort of a chant, follow the data, it Gee, goes the way. It's up a tune, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. We ought to make a song about that, Greg. Yes. Okay. So what you're saying, I'm, I'm loving. Okay. So you're basically saying it gave you the cognitive skill set to know how to engage in the Mormon studies world in a way that has been very, very formative for you, which then has, of course, been instrumental in people like me who has listened to you and have had the curiosity and the capacity to say, if the data doesn't stand on its own, we have to go a different direction. No matter what the loyalty is or the like emotional experiences, we have to follow truth. And your pathology degree and training was the thing that gave you the ability to do that very thing. Yeah. And whether it's science or history, including Mormon history, it's a reductionist statement, but there are two components to it. One is collecting the dots and the other is connecting the dots. The second one is the more difficult one yeah. because the first one is the what. The second one is the so what. And very often we don't move to that. We just stick in descriptive history and string out a whole bunch of data points without really going the next step. Another way of phrasing it is it's the difference between deductive reasoning, which is looking at the data and saying, what's the story that those data points tell? And inductive reasoning, which is, okay, so what's next? Where do we go from here? And being a scientist, it gave me the tools to be able to go in that direction. Which is why our church and every church needs its scholars and its scientists who have this skill set and this training to help us grow and be ethical. Yes, but I don't know very few churches, and I'll put ours in the not-so-good category that appreciate that and follow it. Most of them are in constant tension with their intellectuals. And that's unfortunate because those are the people who are tackling the thorny issues and in effect carrying a lot of water for the church, either that it doesn't want to carry or that it doesn't have the tools to carry. Yes. So it resists and rejects this very work that intellectuals are doing on behalf of the institution to help sustain it paradoxically. Yes. And sometimes way after the fact, we'll begrudgingly acknowledge that, yes, somebody did a good job for the church. You don't see that very much. Right. Sort of the Galileo sort of thing. That's part of the story that we'll get into later, I'm sure. But let me just put out a teaser that there were two personalities who had an enormous effect on me in pulling me into Mormon studies and giving me guidance either directly or through example. One was Juanita Brooks and the other was Lester Bush. And you're going to tell us more about them? Sure. Okay. Okay. Well, I'll put, I'll make a note of that to make sure that we don't forget to talk about that down the road, because yes, we are going to be doing um, several episodes here together. So we're going to get Greg on the record and archived in the Latter-day Struggles podcast for the good work that you have done and are continuing to do in our community. So, okay. I want to hear a little bit about 
let's let's learn about your family, yourself, your life as uh, independent of your profession and your work in Mormon studies. Let's just get to know you a little bit better for a minute. Got married just after finishing dental school. I was 25, had gone on a mission to Brazil, uh, came back, went immediately into dental school at UCLA. We've been married for 50 years now. Have three children, the first one adopted, the second and third biological. Our third is severely autistic, and that has largely defined our lives for the last three plus decades. He's 33, still lives with us. We started an autism foundation in 2008 because we saw that there was nothing in the country that was addressing autism in adults, nothing. And still is very little. So my wife heads the foundation, puts 100% of her time into that. uh, And that largely defines every day of our lives now. Not only how to give him an enriched life, but to prepare him for when we're not here. And we don't have the answers to that yet. That's incredibly touching. And what a beautiful legacy on behalf of your own child. But clearly what you're doing is going to be instrumental in helping a lot of adults and families of adults with autistic family members. So God bless you, Greg, and your wife. The estimates from the CDC are in excess of 5 million autistic people in this country. And the numbers are going up at an accelerating rate. We don't know why. It's not just better diagnosis. It's something is in the environment that is shifting this demographic, and we're not prepared for it. It's fascinating. Wow. So you are still a professional working? Are you retired? Where do you spend most of your time in autism study or working with your wife or elsewhere? Tell us how you spend your days. Depending on how you want to count, I've had five careers. I spent 40 years in virus research with a virus called RSV that when I started, nobody knew about. Now everybody knows about. The research that I started as a doctoral student in UCLA led to what's now the standard of care drug for preemies and a more recent drug that was just approved by the FDA a couple of months ago that will now be given to all babies at the beginning of the RSV season. After 40 years of that, I thought I had retired from bench science and was helping with the Autism Foundation, but then got involved in a biotech company in St. George, another Dixie alumnus, Uh, had started a company having no scientific background, but he got into it because he'd had three joints replaced and two of the three kept failing and nobody could figure out why. It led him into an arena that I call dark bacteria. These have been known for 90 years, but nobody has been able to figure out what their role is, if any. We've known that they can be present in the blood. These are bacteria that drop their cell wall and in so doing can essentially hide from the immune system in small quantities, but persistently. We think that these may be important factors, may be causes of some of the most severe chronic diseases. We don't know the cause of any chronic disease yet. 
it's just a vast uncharted territory. So Brent started to open the door into this field. Uh, and then several years after he started the company, he died unexpectedly. And that left it to me to run the company. So for the past nearly four years, I've been making monthly trips from Maryland, which is my primary residence, to St. George to try to nurture this company with the hope that we can make some inroads on chronic diseases. After four decades, a little bit of a hiatus, now another one. I hope you're enjoying this episode. Here is a quick update. Due to the growth of this platform, I am now focusing the vast majority of my professional time serving you, my people here in and around the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, as you progress on your faith expansion journeys. Therefore, beginning August 14th, 2023, all of my Friday Latter-day Struggles podcast episodes are available by subscription for the price of $9.99 a month. You're paying a couple of dollars a week will significantly support my work. All Monday episodes are still free as I want each of you to be aware of the great topics we are covering from week to week here on the Latter-day Struggles podcast. In my show notes at the bottom of each episode, you will find all of the information that you need to subscribe to the Friday episodes and also a Patreon link to become a one-time or a monthly patron for all of you out there who value my work enough to go above and beyond subscribing for this podcast. Your small cumulative contributions are a very significant way that you can support me in our faith journey together. So thank you so much for your support. Now back to the show. We think that these may be important factors, may be causes of some of the most severe chronic diseases. We don't know the cause of any chronic disease yet. It's just a vast uncharted territory. So Brent started to open the door into this field. And then several years after he started the company, he died unexpectedly. And that left it to me to run the company. So for the past nearly four years, I've been making monthly trips from Maryland, which is my primary residence, to St. George to try to nurture this company with the hope that we can make some inroads on chronic diseases. After four decades, a little bit of a hiatus, now another one. And... All the while, I'm looking at these books that you have written, many of which I have read, and I'm thinking, when in the world is he writing all of these books as he is also so deeply engaged in the scientific world and all of the pathology research that you're you're doing? This is like you must you must have a lot of energy and not not sleep very much. How do you how do you do all of this, Greg? Uh, the first book was really the key. Uh, this was the book on early LDS priesthood. I wrote it when I was still practicing dentistry half-time. I learned to do research in five to 10-minute increments. If I had a patient who was a little bit late, or if I was waiting for the local anesthetic to take place, or if I finished early, I could go into my little cubbyhole office just a few feet away and type one page in five minutes. I had no 
my sources there. I'd bring the books in. I had started a library decades earlier, not really knowing what I was going to do with it. And then I finally figured it out. Well, five minutes equals one page times 10,000. That's mm -hmm. how you do it. I never had the luxury of going someplace and holding up for months or even weeks <clears throat> to write a manuscript. There were chapters of books that I wrote on a plane coming back from Europe because for several years I was doing some consulting work with GlaxoSmithKline in Belgium. Well, that would be an eight or nine hour return flight. I had everything in the computer and so I could do an entire chapter without any interruptions. Yeah. Well, I can resonate with that. I get my very best work done on airplanes. And so I thoroughly enjoy being strapped in with nobody to bother me. <laughs> and so, yes, I get that. I think this would be a good time to actually, you are leading us into, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Greg, but I think this would be a natural transition point because your understanding of science and pathology led you into the field of gender and sexuality studies. And I know this because I have done quite a bit of reading, your reading, reading from you, including a Latter-day Struggles podcast episode for those of you out there that want to go deeper into this, uh, my analysis of some of Greg's work, episode number 54 that I titled, Why Science May Pressure Policy Change on Homosexuality. And that episode is actually an analysis of a pamphlet that I picked up written by you, Greg, that talks about the science behind homosexual men specifically. And what I would love for you to do for the next few minutes, if you would, is I know that that pamphlet is actually just a portion of your book titled Gay Rights and the Mormon Church, Intended Actions, Unintended Consequences. Could you take us there, Greg, and talk to us a little bit about how you evolved into someone who decided to tackle this incredibly important issue of, of gender and gay policy in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints from the perspective of, from your perspective as a scientist. I know that's, I, I asked a, a lot of questions inside of that, but I guess I think I'd like to just be quiet and let you teach us the history and background of this book, and then we'll jump a little bit more into the this book for the rest of this episode today. That pamphlet was the text of a lecture that I gave at the University of Utah in 2017. They have several lectures that were endowed by O.C. Tanner. Uh, and they asked me to give one of those lectures that year. And it was on the biology of homosexuality. It is slanted towards male homosexuality because then and now really the church tends to be much more focused on male homosexuality than anything else. Yeah. Um, unfortunate because a lot of people who deserve some attention are not getting it. Uh, science didn't get me into that, but it prepared me when I got there. I have a sister who's gay. That was never an issue growing up. That didn't take me to the table. It was in the aftermath of prop eight in 2008, <clears throat> that I started to get sensitized in a big way. My daughter was a undergraduate student at Boston University. And so I flew up there for a weekend, uh, talked to uh, a couple of groups up there, including a group in her ward. 
while I was there, I got a phone call from Helen Whitney. Helen had been the producer of a four-hour PBS documentary called The Mormons, which was broadcast in 2007. So this wasn't that much afterwards. She said, my closest friend, Andrew Solomon, who is a brilliant writer for The New Yorker, he published a book in 2000 called The Noonday Demon, which by some is considered the layperson's Bible on depression, won a National Book Award. She said, he is my closest friend and he has turned on me saying, how could you have said anything nice about this evil church that helped to pass Proposition 8? Can you help me to repair the friendship? I had never met Andrew, uh, started to correspond by email, thanks to an introduction from Helen. After several months, he conceded, well, perhaps there's one reasonable Latter-day Saint. But then I suggested that he help me by be part of the solution and not the problem by doing an article for Dialogue. He said he would, but he was in the middle of a contract to write a very large and very important book called Far From the Tree that deals with atypical families and how they cope with life. He was delayed in getting that finished. He didn't write anything for me. Finally, I called him and said, what if I come up to New York and we'll do an interview and that's what we'll publish. Fine. It was a great interview. We did publish it in dialogue. He remains a close friend, which is ironic since it was his animosity towards his friend that got me into this business. But that started to sensitize me because here for the first time, I was in close communication with not just a gay person, but a very, very bright, introspective gay person. He has a doctorate in psychology from Cambridge University. Then not long after that, I was invited out of the blue to be on the National Advisory Council for Johns Hopkins University's School of Education. Go figure. <laughs> I'm not an educator. I asked the uh, associate dean of the school, why me? And he said, well, we wanted somebody from biotech. Okay. The only meeting I ever attended where Eric Paquette also attended, we sat next to each other at lunch. It was the first meeting that I attended. Uh, I found out that he was a vice president for Screen Gems, which is a division of Sony Entertainment. And I said, oh, I'm going to be out in L.A. in a couple of weeks lecturing at a symposium. He said, well, why don't you come by and we'll have lunch? We did. California was still smarting from Prop 8. This was, I think, in the latter part of 2010. And in the course of lunch, he found out that I was LDS. And he also figured out, hey, you're reasonable. He said, would you be willing to have dinner with a close friend of mine who was a prominent gay activist? Sure. And so the next night, he and Rick Jacobs and I had dinner. And Rick came to the same conclusion. Gee, you're reasonable. Rick was the founder of a political action group called the Courage Campaign in California. It was multifaceted until Prop 8, and then it focused on Prop 8. 
and it became really the principal adversary to the church in the Prop 8 battle. It was the first gay organization that pulled back the curtain and said, hey, the Mormon church is full steam behind Prop 8, although they were trying to do it covertly. That established a relationship that is still a strong friendship to this day. A few months after that, I was in Salt Lake. A dear friend, Darius Gray, said, you know, you need to be introduced to the people at Church Public Affairs. So he took me up there, and one of the people in public affairs was Bill Evans. Bill had been the church's point man on the professional side for Prop 8, managing logistics for the campaign. After a couple of meetings with him, I just mentioned as an aside, my friendship with Rick Jacobs. And his response was to stiffen a bit and say, do you know who he is? And I said, yeah, I do. And that was then, and this is now. Well, a few months after that, Bill called me and said, I have taken this up the ladder and have received approval. Would you invite Rick and his partner to be VIP guests at the Tabernacle Choir Christmas concert? And then you and Jalen fly out and host them, which happened. The concert was at eight o'clock. So Jim DeBacchus, who was the only gay state senator in the history of the state, and I decided let's put together a dinner beforehand. We did it at the Alta Club, which is only a couple blocks from the conference center, and it was really a who's who, not just of Utah LGBTQ, but we had Chad Griffith, who was just installed as the national director of the Human Rights Campaign, which is the largest LGBTQ uh, support group in the country. We had uh, Dustin Lance Black, who former LDS, who won an Academy Award for his screenplay for Milk. And we had several people from the church public affairs office, including Bill Evans. Well, Bill and Rick, we arranged to sit next to each other for dinner. So here, here are these two men who had been fierce adversaries four years previously. At the end, we still had a few minutes Jim has jumped up and engineered an impromptu testimony meeting. He just pointed to you, 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 stand up and just talk. Well, two of the ones he pointed to were Rick Jacobs and Bill Evans. And they said essentially the same thing. Four years ago, we were enemies. Now we're friends. It was a turning point. At about that same time, I was invited by the new president of Affirmation, which is the oldest LGBTQ support group that is church-affiliated, mm -hmm. not affiliated with the church, but has an LDS slant to it, invited to be on their board of directors and served on that for five years. All these things happening seemingly independent of each other. But the sum of it was <clears throat> that I became sensitized enough that I saw that there was an untold story surrounding Prop 8 and, and the church's involvement in it that I thought was important enough 
that it should be told. As I got into it, I realized that Prop 8 wasn't in a vacuum. That to understand Prop 8, you had to go back eight years earlier to 2000 with Prop 23 in California. Prop 23 was the exact wording of Prop 8, but it was an initiative to make it a state law. The backers of Prop 23, or 23 or 22, whichever it was, they, they thought that it might get overturned in the courts. And in, I think it was early 2008, it was overturned. So they were ready to go with a new ballot initiative that took the exact same wording, but made it an amendment to the state constitution. Because Prop 22 had been struck down as unconstitutional within California. And then I realized if you're going to look at that, you had to go back even further to when did the marriage equality fight really get serious? And the answer to that is you go back to Hawaii in the early 1990s. That was the first lawsuit that looked like it had a chance of going anywhere. There had been earlier ones in the 1970s in the Midwest. They'd all been dismissed by the judge at summary judgment. The one in Hawaii had legs. And as it moved through the courts, the LDS church panicked, as did other churches, as did other states, as did the federal government, because the U.S. Constitution has the full faith and credit clause, which means that laws of one state need to be respected by other states. So the thinking was, if Hawaii legalizes same-sex marriage, then any marriage that is performed in Hawaii will be valid if that couple moves to any other state, unless there would be state laws explicitly protecting against that. So this is when you had a flurry of activity. Many states passed either laws or state constitutional amendments. Utah did that. And the Defense of Marriage Act, DOMA, which was signed reluctantly by Bill Clinton, was part of that. It was all to build barriers in case the Hawaii case prevailed. Now, eventually, it became a moot issue, but everybody had built these bulwarks of protection. So that's where I pushed the study back to the beginning of the marriage equality fight, and that by that point, I realized it's not just marriage equality, it's the whole thing. Yeah. The book really begins in the late 1960s. And there were three things that happened 1968-69 that really set the church up for the course that it took after that. One was in 1968, for the very first time, any form of the H word was included in the General Handbook of Instructions, which is the church's canon law. And it was homosexual or homo-sexual acts, which was listed 
along with other transgressions that might be cause for a church court, which is what we used to call them. 1969, two things happened. One was the Stonewall riots in New York City, which brought gay rights permanently into the public square. It wasn't the first salvo there, but it was the one that brought them out to stay. Then within a few months of that was the publication of Spencer Kimball's book called The Miracle of Forgiveness, which had an entire chapter on homosexuality that was and remains absolutely draconian. Uh, I've talked to gay people who said they became suicidal after reading that chapter. So those three things happening within a year of each other really formed a logical starting point for that book. And the book just marches through time and shows how the church became involved both internally and in the public square, what the effects of that have been, and some commentary on where we might go in the future. Thank you. I read and thoroughly enjoyed this book, Gay Rights and the Mormon Church, Intended Actions, Unintended Consequences that you wrote, Greg. And I will make sure that those of you out there listening in this audience have access. I will make sure this is uh, referenced in my show notes and you'll find links to how to purchase this on social media. And I also know because I listened to it that it's on Audible. So there are all sorts of ways for you to become acquainted with Greg's really remarkable research that, again, it shares in quite detail the proceedings of the various court cases, whether it be from the early years in, in Hawaii through the first California case, Prop 22, I believe, and then to Prop 8, but it gives all of the context and the backstory and in some ways is quite a sobering education about the LDS Church's covert efforts to be involved, but pretend like they weren't involved. And that to me was was dis disconcerting. It was upsetting to me as I, as I learned a little bit more about how they operated in ways that I think are very questionably unethical ways from, I guess, where I sit, uh, because they didn't want to appear as if they were as involved as they really were. And I really have a ton of respect for your research, Greg, because I do think it's so important for us to better understand the interconnection between theology and politics and community and faith and family and trauma and psychology, because it's all there. It's all interwoven. And for us to be responsible consumers of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints faith, I think we need to understand some of these more complex topics, especially because there are very few, if any of us, who are not profoundly impacted by, whether it be because of ourselves or people that we love very much, who are somewhere on the LGBTQ plus spectrum. And this impacts the way they see themselves, the way they experience the world, the way they see themselves through the eyes of the church. And we need to know these things. We need to be uh, educated around not only the current policy, but also 
how we got here and that it's deep and pervasive. And there's a lot of details that your book does a really, really beautiful job of, of explaining. And at least from my perspective, I learned so much, Greg, from your efforts and, and from your work. So couldn't recommend this book enough. Let me comment on the subtitle. It includes the phrase unintended consequences and the biggest unintended consequence happened to be because of Prop 8. The church won the battle and lost the war. Even though Prop 8 passed, later it was overturned. It was a constitutional amendment within California, but it was taken to federal court and was ruled unconstitutional per the federal constitution. But also, even before that was struck down, the reaction against the Prop 8 election was really what pushed the dominoes in the opposite direction. And that was a remarkably fast process culminating in 2015 with Ober Obergefell versus Hodges, the Supreme Court decision that legalized same-sex marriage within the United States. So unwittingly, the church became the accelerant for the legalization of same-sex marriage. I believe I read you saying that at some point in time, perhaps. Is that is that something that you mention and expound upon in, in your Gay Rights in the Mormon Church book, Greg? I haven't looked at that book since I published it, so I don't <laughs> remember if it's in there. It probably is somewhere. Well, I, the reason why I'm asking you that is because that was one of those moments, whether it was through the book or something in some sort of a commentary where I was struck by this concept that the standard of truth has been erected and like God, God will move forward truth one way or another. And I just loved sort of the, uh, it was the irony of the tenacious efforts of the LDS church to prohibit these rights amongst these people that we love. And, you know, we are and love people that are queer and that, inadvertently their efforts actually backfired such that it's one of those social issues that has swung probably more quickly than any other social, any other single social issue in the history, at least of our country, moving from uh, a vast opposition towards uh, a softening of and an acceptance of this terribly marginalized population. And when I learned that Prop 8 was instrumental in that, I, it, it kind of made me smile. I thought, well, good. Something good has come of something that that in some ways was, was intended to, yes, protect their beliefs, but was in essence marginalizing and really deeply damaging a huge population of, of our loved ones and our friends and ourselves through. Ultimately, it had a good outcome, but a lot of injury along the way, and a lot of death. Yep. When we talk about death, we're not talking about a metaphor. No, no. One death is too many. If there is a policy or a theology or any kind of a doctrine that brings about one single suicide, it is a doctrine that needs to be challenged. Suicide or homicide, because we've seen both. That's correct. That's correct. Greg, as we close this episode up today, what would you say as you sort of reflect on your part, the part that you've played both as 
an advocate for and an author of this book and a scientist who has done lectures on the science behind especially homosexual men. How has this impacted you personally that you would like to share with our audience as far as your your contribution to, to this beautiful work that you are part of? It certainly sensitized me. It allows me a more credible voice in other circles as well. I've been a governor at Wesley Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C. for six years. The only Latter-day Saint they've ever had on that board. And as I talk to the people around the table there from nearly all flavors of Protestantism, they're all struggling with the same issue. And nobody has a very good answer yet. The United Methodist Church is a bit of an oxymoron now because they will stand to lose about one third of their congregations over this issue. Uh, they have handled it even more poorly than Latter-day Saints have. But at least there's an ongoing dialogue there, and I'm part of that dialogue. In terms of its effect within the church, I don't know. I've not heard a single word from any church official, either at the local or the general level, with respect to this book. I tried to give the church a voice early on, and I state that in the introduction, that I went through channels through the Public Affairs Department and asked to be granted interviews with certain people who were involved in Prop 8. Uh, it took them four months to decide to send me a one-line, thank you, but no thanks. Wow. But it gave them a chance to have their voice heard. The book is the poorer for the lack of that voice, but that voice isn't there because it decided not to come. Uh, I, I'm sorry that they made that decision, but that's the decision they made. Other than that, once the book came out, I haven't heard a thing from anybody within the church hierarchy, either general or local. I get a lot of comments from church members. If they reach out to me, generally they're going to do it because they liked the book. They thought it was useful. I'm sure there are people who were put off by it, but they tend not to be the ones who will reach out to me. So it justified the work that I put in on it. The four books that I've published have taken in aggregate 32 years. I don't can't even guess how many thousands of hours. They've never even come close to paying their own way, but that was never the point. And I felt very satisfied with all four of them that they have been useful and probably will continue to be useful. And that's the real reason for writing. I couldn't agree more. I mean, I can say firsthand, Greg, that your scholarship, your dedication, your commitment, your bravery in the topic of LGBTQ issues as it relates to a respectful challenge of the theology of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has been absolutely pivotal in my life. And it's it's through your books and some of the other brave authors of our faith that I do believe you have contributed greatly in a very special time. I think we're living in a very special time where things are shifting and changing and there there needs to be some very, very prominent changes taking place 
around these issues or the church is going to lose a lot of its very faithful members who are are looking in the face of these these issues and are and are not willing to just sort of go along with current ideas when they do not agree with their ethics their morals and the way the move the world is moving towards awakening to the the wounds that we have inflicted on marginalized populations such as queer people so there is a follow-up to this about a year and a half ago uh, two friends reached out to me both in their early 80s they had been on the board of directors of dialogue in 1973 when lester bush's pivotal article on blacks and priesthood was published uh, both of them have gay grandchildren one of them said my oldest granddaughter just received a mission call and not long before that she came out as gay um, family's fine with it the bishop the stake president are fine with it and what i'm not fine with he said is that the church to which she will return will be hostile to her we need to do for lgbtq what lester did for blacks and priesthood so there is an initiative right now uh, I wrote the chapter on biology, which is greatly expanded from that pamphlet that you referred to earlier, largely because the biology has exploded in the last six years since that pamphlet was published. There will be a lengthy chapter on the Bible written by an LDS biblical scholar uh, that will deconstruct what most church members thought they knew about what the Bible says about homosexuality, most of which is wrong. Uh, there will be a lengthy chapter on the social history of LGBTQ within the church. That's volume one. <clears throat> volume two will look at the legal history. It will look at the history of organizations such as Affirmation and Encircle, which published the pamphlet that you read. Uh, and then there will be personal voices there. We hope to get volume one out next year. So there is more coming down the pike, and it's going to be a lot richer than what I published four years ago. Well, you just made my whole day. I can't believe that all of this is percolating and that our community is so committed to doing such good work and I am honored to be able to be a voice and help these things move forward through my platform in any way that I can, Greg. Is I it, you reduce you to tears. I, I am reduced to tears frequently, and it's challenging to listen to, at least it's challenging for me to listen to myself talking through tears. So I try to like take a second. So, okay, everyone, what a beautiful episode. I am so excited to be at the front end of several episodes that you and I are going to be doing together, Greg. And what a beautiful way to start to talk about the efforts of Greg and his cohort of believers, scientists, and very, very brave reformers as we are trying to help our world and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints become a more healthy and safe place for every individual that wants to have some relationship with it. And this work is incredibly sacred work that you are a part of, and I am privileged to be on the peripheries, even if I'm just over here talking about it and helping spread the word. I am so honored to be a part of that. So those of you who have found this episode 
enlightening if you're ex as excited as I am about what Greg just shared as far as what's coming down uh, in the near future. Please share this episode far and wide with those in your circles. Also, if there is any way that I can assist you in your faith expansion journey here in and around the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, jump on to latterdaystruggles.com and you will find access to how you can join one of my support and processing groups. You can look at my courses. You can look at the options that I offer in terms of coaching, therapy, and other ways of being uh, in connection individually, one-on-one -on -one with myself or with my team. And please, as always, if this podcast is something that is proving to be helpful and effective in your faith journey, please write a rating and a review so that others that are just at the beginning of their faith crisis can know that there is a place where they can come where they can find health and hope and healing and where they won't feel alone. Thank you all for being here and Greg and I will see you next time. Bye-bye. Dialogue Podcast Network.